priest forever. A priest forever. The writer of the book of Hebrews spends the first five chapters of the book telling us about how vital Jesus Christ is. Who he is, what his work is, how he's going to function. It's the purpose of the writer of the book of Hebrews to address the Jewish people who have been living in the rituals of their worship now for a couple thousand years. And now suddenly, with the dawning of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus Christ among them, they're being told that everything that they've done in their life, their daily rituals, the offering of sacrifices, the celebration of feasts. They're being told that everything they did that they knew as religion was all finished in Jesus Christ. And now they need to leave behind all of those rituals because they are dead, because they pointed to Jesus. They're even being told that Jesus is their rest. Hebrews, the fourth chapter. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing specifically to Jewish people to tell them in a very logical, step-by-step, -step, sequential process who Jesus is, why he's the end of everything, and now what their responsibility is to Jesus and what will happen to them if they start to follow Jesus and then they turn back and deny Jesus. It's a terrifying book for them. It's not for us because we were raised as Gentiles, right? <laughs> no, it's terrifying for any Christian to begin to sort out in their lives things that are dead and are simply rituals. And come on, we all live by rituals. I get up in the morning, I go in the bathroom. I don't even have to think about what I'm supposed to do in there. My mind is somewhere else. I just go through what I have to go through. Often when I'm hungry, my mind isn't even on what I'm eating. I just sit there and, and my spoon and my fork know what they're supposed to do for me. Because we have habits. Habits are very useful. They save us brain time so we can focus on what's important. So the more we can ritualize in our life, the more brain space we have. Well, these people are being told that all of their brain stuff has to come back into action and they have to throw out all the rituals they've known and begin now to completely allow the Holy Spirit to reprogram their minds so that their focus is now on Jesus and Jesus alone. So we find in the sixth chapter, 
that Paul or the writer of the book of Hebrews, and frankly, we don't know, it probably was Apollos, but it may have been Paul. We're not told. We're beginning to be told in chapter 6 about leaving behind the elementary teachings, the baby steps. We're told, stop having to talk about repenting from going back to your rituals. You don't have to go back and replace those rituals with Jesus. Just do it. Stop worrying about it. And then he goes on, you don't need to talk about faith in God anymore. You know what faith is. Now you just have to do it. Somebody said to me this last week, Pastor, I'm trying to have faith. I said, no, stop. You cannot try to have faith. You either have it or you don't have it. Don't make excuses for your wickedness. You either trust them or you don't trust them. A woman doesn't try to be pregnant. She's either pregnant or she's not pregnant. We either have faith or we don't have faith. Instructions about baptisms. There were many different baptisms in Judaism. Baptism means putting under the water. So you'd go in the house and you had ritual cleansing of your hands. You had washing of the feet. All of these were baptisms. He's saying, could we please stop talking about baptisms? The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And then he says, and God permitting, we're going to do so. We're going to go and talk about what's really important. So what does the writer of the book of Hebrews think is really important? What is top of the line importance? Well, immediately he has to stop and go back and do some cleanup. And the cleanup work he has to do is to say, look, make certain in your life you're not crucifying Jesus Christ by what you're doing and saying. Make sure you're walking out what I've been teaching you. Because a day will come of judgment. And if you've not been walking out what I've told you, you're going to burn. I don't want you to burn. And then he begins to talk about what he really wants to say that will grow us up into Jesus. And he begins with a word of encouragement by saying, verse 17 of chapter 6, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. So what does Jesus want to give us? Hope. Hope for eternity. A hope that his covenant and his promises are true and there is a place of salvation for us. 
He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. Jesus went into the holy of holies in the heavenly sanctuary. And we now have an anchor and a rope from our soul into the heavenly sanctuary. We are anchored there. The devil can't take us away. He's offering us this absolute hope that salvation is given to us if we allow that rope and that anchor to fulfill its function so that we have an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when we begin to doubt him, we're calling Jesus a liar. And I can tell you today, as Catherine said, every word Jesus has spoken is true. You can trust it. But then I have to stop and ask just very quickly because I'm a pastor. Do you have more than one anchor? Are you anchored into heaven and anchored into your work? Then you really can't move, can you? Do you have one anchor in the television? or in food, in the refrigerator? Where do you go for your comfort? Wherever you go for your comfort is where your anchor is. Our anchor is only to be in Jesus. Only in Jesus. Then as the storm comes, we're unmoved. Our anchor holds firm in the heavens. And now he gets to what he really wants to say. I, I love Jewish people. They are so verbose. It's like they're all Jewish mamas. They got to tell you this, and then they got to tell you that, and then they tell you this, and pat you on the head. And then they finally get to the real issue that they've got to talk to you about. I mean, this man who wrote Hebrews was a real Jewish mama. But now he gets to the real issue. Chapter 7, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. The priesthood of Jesus is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, who's Melchizedek? Usually we talk about Melchizedek in terms of tithing. That's not what Melchizedek was about. Uh, keep your finger right there in Hebrews 7 and open with me please to Genesis the 14th chapter. Uh, kings came against Sodom and Gomorrah and the regional kings. They utterly defeated them. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had decided to stop paying tribute every year 
to this other consortium of kings. And they were angry because the, the taxes had not been paid to them. And so they came against Sodom and Gomorrah and they wiped them out. They captured everything. But they didn't know that they'd captured Abraham's nephew Lot. And Abraham called out his 300 and some trained soldiers who were his servants. Now, by the way, some of you wonder, is it, is it right to defend our homes with firearms? Talk to Abraham. He not only had his trained servants trained in warfare, but in the care of sheep. Most of their days were spent taking care of the cattle and the sheep and the, and the goats and the camels. But they knew how to handle a sword. And they're going to go and reclaim their family. They travel quite a number of miles to Dan. And there they make a night attack. They should not have won. But by the power of God, this vast army of thousands was defeated. Can you imagine the filth and the grime and the dirt, the sweat? And suddenly they hear trumpets and a chariot is coming, probably with a whole entourage of soldiers. And it's the king of Salem. the king of what was called Jerusalem. This king would not remain long in Jerusalem, however. Soon after Abraham, he departs. We don't know where he went. And the Jebusites move into Jerusalem and take it over. And it's not restored until many years later. This Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious figures in history. He is to have been without genealogy. He'd always been, he would always be, he was a, a priest forever. I don't know who he was. I suspect he was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Only Jesus fits the description of Melchizedek. And frankly, I like that idea, and I'll tell you why. I think Jesus came down to live among us as a king because he knew that was the only way he'd be safe and not be crucified. And it wasn't time for him to be crucified, so he came to visit as a king and to find out personally what these human beings are like. We only have record that he showed up for Abraham. Nobody else. He appears and then he's gone. And there's no history of where he went or what he did. But notice, verse 17, this is Genesis 14, verse 17. It was after Abram returned from defeating the kings 
that the king of that the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Why? The broken body of Jesus, the spilled blood of Jesus. And he refreshed Abraham and the men who had fought. And he blessed Abram. Listen to the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heavens and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now the king of Sodom says, give me the people and you keep the goods for yourself. Now this is so interesting to me because Abram has a promise that he is going to be given his ancestors all of this land. He's already had to buy some property, but now everything is here for him. He can easily take over Sodom and Gomorrah and own them. He just won with his sword the right to take the properties and to keep all the goods. But he's very clear that God is the one who has to give him the promised land, that he is not going to get the promised land with his sword. Please get this. You are not going to get God's promises with your sword. You will get the promises of God because Jesus will give them to you. Not because you have the strength to try to go and take what you want. God is so pleased with Abram's response of no, I will not take a thing that in chapter 15, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. This Melchizedek disappears from history but we're told in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 6, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek to Jesus. This is what the Father said. Now, you understand, there was a priesthood called the Levitical priesthood. It was instituted by God. It was under Aaron. And as Aaron would die, his son would take over. And when his son died, his son would take over. It was passed through the family. Not so with this priesthood. There is one priest, and he is a priest forever. Now, where there's a change in priests, in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. 
the Levitical law only fit under the Levitical order. Now, I know this is not very juicy stuff, and you may be tempted to doze off on me, and if you do, I'm going to say everybody stand up, because this is really important. There is a priesthood that lasts forever. And Jesus right now is functioning in the heavenly realm in that priesthood. And he is making a decision about you right now. Will you live or will you die? Will he bless you or will he curse you? And all is dependent on whether you access the blood of this priesthood to be made holy. Walk with me as I share this with you. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of God Most High. But Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. The city was called Salem. He was king of Salem, which means peace. So this priest comes to us as peace and righteousness. Those are the two identifying factors of this new priesthood. The factor representing the Levitical priesthood is law. I know, guys, aren't kids wonderful? They do and say the darnest things. Can I have everybody back with me, please? I can't compete with a cute little baby. And she is cute. The Levitical priesthood is about laws and rules and regulations. The priesthood of Jesus is about peace and righteousness. Both gifts that are given to us, not captured by our sword. This Melchizedek, without mother, without father, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, remains a priest forever. And Jesus is that priest. Now you understand the priesthood came from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. It is a totally different source 
two different tribes. Judah is the tribe of kingship. Levi is the tribe of priesthood. But Jesus came to us as a king and a priest. Both became joined together so that he exercises divine authority over us and he also wipes out our sin and cleanses us from unrighteousness. But he has executive authority to decide who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. That's his choice. It's his decision to make because he is both king and priest. <laughs> Verse 18, the former regulation is set aside, that is the Levitical priesthood, because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath from God which said to him, The Lord has sworn you will, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus functions today as your high priest. After you've been in heaven a million years, Jesus will still be your priest. What is a priest? A priest is the one who stands between the creatures, the created beings, and the God of heaven. And always then, Jesus will stand between us and the great God of heaven. Jesus is God. But before he came to earth, he was not known as Jesus. All of the names for God in the scripture are not the true names of God. The names of God are beyond our understanding. He named himself names that indicate his work of salvation for us. So what would you think if you met me for the first time and we introduced ourselves and you asked me what my name was and I said, money for you? You say, what? Money for you? Well, could I have some? Well, yes. Here, money for you. Every name Jesus gives us is a name of his giving to us. Jesus saves us from our sins. God has one purpose. To, to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God doesn't steal from us. He doesn't take from us. He is not a hard God. He is here to give to us. 
And two gifts are the, are the most important gifts he wants to give to us. Peace and righteousness. Those are the two gifts he cherishes the most because they identify who God is. God is peace and God is righteousness. And his intention is that we would be like him. He wants us to be his bride. Now, I would certainly not choose me to be a bride. Would he choose you? Nah, I doubt it. But by his grace, he chose all of us. What is grace? The love of God poured out to draw us into his heart. Grace, grace, God's grace, amazing grace. So Jesus has become the guarantor of a better, of a better covenant. Hebrews 7th chapter, verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. That same word is used in the book of Luke. When Jesus speaks to this woman who for 18 years has been bent over like this and had to look up like this. Have you ever seen someone in a store walking around like that? I have many times. This woman bent over, could not straighten her back. The word Luke uses is completely so that she stood straight up and walked. The writer of the book of Hebrews is using that same word and he's saying that Jesus will heal you completely. Completely. So that you are not bowed over with a weight of your wickedness on your heart. That he will totally remove that wickedness from you so that you are not bowed down in guilt, in feeling bad. You will be instead lifted up and be straight. And know that your Redeemer lives. You know, I just, I'm puzzled. Why do we human beings get such a kick out of being bowed over? Miserable. 
Why do we always want to go our own way and run our own lives? Until our back aches so bad, we wonder how can we survive? Did you know that 90% of American adults will at some point in their life suffer severe lower back pain? It's a malady of America. Why are we so determined to have backaches? It's in our culture. Jesus comes and says, will you let me heal you? Will you let me straighten your back so that you can walk in righteousness and I'll carry the heavy load that's breaking your back? So instead, we want to go jump in the refrigerator and gorge. Or we want to go grab that movie or we want to go grab that whatever and comfort our hearts and pretend that I'm in charge. I can do what I'd like to do. I'm the one making the contribution that's worthwhile. I'm somebody. Come on. Jesus is this priest forever, Melchizedek. And he's saying, will you let me heal you completely? Will you let me restore you completely? I want to heal you. This is a high priest that meets our needs. One who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer a sacrifice day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all. The sacrifice of Jesus was completed at the cross. He said on the cross, it is finished. Your total deliverance and healing was finished at the cross. Let that soak in. Why the struggle? Why the upset? It's done. It's simply now for us to deny ourselves the right to be the boss, the right to go and have whatever I want to have, the right to join the devil in whatever way I want to join him, to let the bitterness roll out of my heart, to let the anger flow. It's my right. I'm going to do what I want to do. No, Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross. You have to die. I mean, do you all recognize, what is this? A hand, right? But what's all around it? Flesh. Flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Is there something evil about this flesh? No, it's just flesh. 
but it can inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because all flesh has to die. There's a, there's a transition. First, it's in the inner spirit where we're transformed. God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So he's looking for people who right now will continue to live in their flesh. But their heart, their mind, their spirit enters into the spirit of Christ. We can't see it. But we believe in many things we can't see. Well, just let me ask a question. Did, have any of you seen gravity? I've never seen gravity. But when I was a kid and we were jumping off the barn into the haystack, I could feel the gravity. So I made sure I landed in the haystack and not on the solid ground. We've all felt gravity, but we've never seen it. Because I haven't seen gravity, does that mean it's not real? Of course not. We're called to move beyond simply this flesh and recognize that this flesh simply houses a spirit, a soul. And that spirit and that soul are to be given entirely in worship, in truth, to the living God of heaven. If we do that, the day will come when in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, this flesh will be changed out for a divine body like Jesus had when he was resurrected. The scriptures say that it'll happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye will be changed and the corruptible, this flesh, will put on incorruption. One man I heard talking about his body he was suffering from a lot of sickness. And he said, you know, this house is really getting rickety and I'm about to move out of it because I have a new house waiting for me. It was just his way of saying my life is about to end because this house can't hold my spirit anymore. There are too many holes in the roof too many broken things in it. I'm about to move on. Well, he's right. Your body today may be very strong. Some of you who are young, man, I'm gonna live forever. Are you kidding me? You're not gonna live forever. Everything's gonna start to sag and droop and your face is gonna look like a hang dog. You know, I've watched some of you age. I'll be nice. We've all aged. You've known me. I didn't always look like this. Jesus is a high priest 
And it's his intention and his desire to save us completely. And to save us completely means denial of self because the pearl is so precious we're going to sell everything we have to buy it. We're going to deny ourselves. We're going to let Jesus crucify us. And we're letting Jesus make us righteous. And we're letting Jesus put peace in our hearts. So today it doesn't matter what the storm is that's coming at me. There's peace in my heart. There's calm in my spirit because I trust my high priest. Verse 25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus functions in intercession between you and the great God of heaven. He stands in between to make intercession for you and for me to accomplish the work he desires to do in our hearts. The point of what we're saying is this, chapter 8, verse 1. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. The time is coming, verse 8. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declared the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. The new covenant of the Melchizedek priesthood in Jesus Christ is that we are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and it is a complete work that he will do in us but now let me say this please this work will bring immense suffering into your life this work cannot be accomplished in you without suffering what is the suffering? The suffering is that the wicked inner man squeals like a stuck pig 
when God tries to put it down. And we say, oh no, I want my pig nature and I want Jesus too. And I've watched that battle rage back and forth in men's lives for years until finally God brings them into such trying times that it's either they're going to submit or they're going to die. Some of us do things the hard way. I would plead with you today, do it the easy way. Just go ahead and roll over and die and let Jesus make of you a new creature. Let Jesus have his way in your heart. I know you won't because none of us do. <laughs> I mean, when I look at what some of you have been through, it makes me wonder how you're still kicking. Why not just say, Jesus, have your way. Guys, make a covenant with your eyes not to lust after women. Gals, make a covenant with your eyes not to lust after men. Make a covenant with your heart with Jesus that you're not going to go grab and growl everything you can grab and growl just because you can. Make a covenant with Jesus to receive only from his hand what he chooses to give you. Let the peace of God begin to come into your heart. Mighty God, we come today to your table. Lord, we're so clear. We cannot save ourselves. It is a supernatural work that you must do in us. And Lord, we come to take your communion to say, Jesus, please, please overrule in our natures and bring us through whatever is necessary that we would submit to you, Jesus, that we would be filled with your peace redeemed by your love and made righteous unto that day of salvation. I pray in your holy name. Amen.